Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday, January 23rd at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Caitlin Owens of Axios. Good morning. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So pretty much as expected, the Supreme Court this week refused to take up on an expedited basis that Texas ACA case that is threatening to declare the entire health law unconstitutional. It would have taken five votes for the high court to hear it during the current term, the one that ends in June. Uh, The court hasn't said yet if it will take the case on a non-expedited basis. That would mean they would likely hear it next fall and decide it uh, in June of 2021. Uh, That only takes four votes to decide to hear it. But clearly, the Affordable Care Act is still going to be under kind of a cloud throughout this election year. So does that help or hurt one side more than the other, do you think? I mean, this was sort of painted, I think, Margo, you painted as as kind of a big uh, sort of favor for the Republicans to not have this decision coming out in the middle of the campaign. But now the Democrats get to use it to beat up on the Republicans, right? Yeah. I mean, I continue to see this as basically a best case scenario for Republicans. And I think there are two reasons for it. Um, One is that I just think that this case being an actively litigated matter and especially this case being resolved with a victory for the Trump administration, which I think is not super likely but was certainly possible. Meaning the whole law would be The whole law being overturned. So that's like obviously not what the Democrats want in terms of public policy. But I think politically – the specter of that or the reality of that would be really helpful to them because I think it would remind voters that they are the ones that passed the Affordable Care Act. They're the ones that care about their pre-existing conditions. They really have a good political playbook for running on that. And then I think the other reason is like a little bit more morbid, but the reality is that it seems somewhat likely that the current composition of the Supreme Court is um, sympathetic to the arguments being brought by these democratic states in the House of Representatives. They seem to think that the Affordable Care Act is relatively well constructed. And, you know, the five justice majority that um, upheld the Affordable Care Act in the face of a similar, not exactly the same, but similar challenge in 2012 remain more, on the court. A more legit challenge, according to most law, you know, uh, experts. But you know, this takes a couple, a year or two or longer to come back to the Supreme Court. There are quite a few of those justices who are old and may want to retire or may have health setbacks. And so if you imagine a scenario in which President Trump is reelected and one of the current justices, uh, the Democratic appointed justices, is replaced by a justice of President Trump's choosing, that could affect the final disposition of the case, too. So I think for Republicans, they kind of get a little short term relief on the politics. And then I think they do maybe on the margin, but they do increase their chances of winning the case in the long run. Well, and I want to make two points, too. I think that, first of all, I mean, it's good for I agree with everything you're saying, but it's also continues to be crazy that. I don't think Republicans ever want to win this case. (laughs) You know, I think they like having it out there. I think they've boxed themselves into a corner. But the moment they win it, if that ever happens, it's going to be a nightmare for them. 
repealing the, the Affordable Care Act is very unpopular, um, and well, also there is no plan. I was to say there's it. there's a difference between <laughs> repealing it and just having the whole thing struck down. I mean right, that with, right. with nothing ready to go. I, I guess to also we it. should say like Republicans are not a monolith on this as right. on any other thing, right? So right. there are some Republicans who are actively litigating to to bring this case right. forward to have those approved court overturn the Affordable Care Act. And then, of course, there are many other Republicans in Congress who, as you say, just like, they don't yeah, want that to happen. Congress doesn't want it to happen. And then voters, you know, I think that like voters are voters are always weird, right? Where I think that they, some Republican voters can hear with one ear like, oh, yeah, we hate the Affordable Care Act. But then if you actually explain to them the situation, oh, we also hate that, you know, like being able <laughs> to be, have to not be able to have insurance because we're sick, you know. So, uh, yeah. And then my second point, I think, to Democrats is that you know, in my opinion, I don't think they're capitalizing on the op- the political opportunity that this case brings to them. And I don't know, you know, it, depending on who – I think it depends who the nominee is, whether they're going to be able to capitalize on it. But it seems like a huge missed opportunity for them to really hammer home the stakes of this presidential election. Someone, I would say on the oh. presidential level, they're not they're not taking the opportunity. They're not talking about it. They're more fighting amongst themselves right, about right. single payer or versus a public option versus something else. But I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about uh, Senate campaigns and those Democrat candidates yeah. are absolutely highlighting this. And you're seeing like um, uh, Sarah Gideon, the woman running against Susan Collins, is just hammering it over and over, um, focusing on um, her uh, helping to confirm Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and um, um, voting for the tax bill that you know led to this lawsuit in a roundabout way, um, and so I I would say that absolutely they're trying to replicate um, House Democrats' victories in 2018 on the Senate side, focusing on Obamacare and this lawsuit. To your point about the the presidential candidates not capitalizing on it, somebody at the last debate, I actually think it was the Politico reporter, actually asked tried. the question, <laughs> "What about we this? Tried. What about this court case?" And they immediately, you know, like, no, we're going to talk well, about that. Uh, care for all. I mean, the uncomfortable truth is that, sure, we we can point uh, to the administration not having a backup plan and uh, Republicans in Congress not having a backup plan, but Democrats don't seem to have a backup plan either. And um, I mean, this is a looming reality. And, you know, it's not just the Affordable Care Act could completely go away or it could be completely saved. The reason it was sent back down to the lower court was to determine which pieces of it could be carved right. out and saved. And so, you know, if just the protections for pre-existing conditions and other consumer protections are um, are struck down, then that requires a whole different response to then if everything was struck down. Right. Right. So. But I do think, I mean, the Democrats have legislation that they already wrote, which is the Affordable Care Act that <laughs> yes. I think, you know, obviously it's been modified a lot since then. And I'm not saying that they absolutely all agree with every single mm-hmm. twist and turn of it in the current Congress in the way that they did 10 years ago. But I do think that Democrats do have a piece of legislation they can point to where they can say, if the Affordable Care Act is overturned, like we could pass this bill. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Which I think the Republicans really don't have anything even close to that. Well, um, you're, you're anticipating my next question, mm-hmm. which is that Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said in a radio interview this week that because the ACA is under no immediate threat, the administration isn't prioritizing having a replacement plan ready. That sort of tracks with what the president has been saying, although he's 
sort of said both things, but I think everybody has acknowledged that they can't repeal and replace the ACA anyway while the House is controlled by Democrats. So why should they come out with a plan that will just get battered by candidates? So do we do we think at this point that we don't see them even? I mean, they had Seema Verma had promised a plan. Um, that we've seen several iterations of promises of a replacement plan. Do we think we see anything from the Republicans on this before I think the election? It's not in their interest. I mean, honestly, if if the court's not going to take it up, um, the the they sort of get a pass for now, and they are able to uh, instead try to pivot the healthcare conversation to criticizing Medicare for all, saying you know they're going to take away your private coverage, et cetera. Um, and so that I think that's why, as Margot said, this is sort of a political gift for them to push it till after the election. Well, Alice, I mean, Politico published that Azar got in a fight with Seema Verma yes. about her Obamacare replacement plan and killed it. She did it. have one. Yeah, she did have one. And I guess it was not – it was politics that I – mean, Basically, yeah. it was it was the cost of it. It would have cost a lot of money. Right. Um, and that would have been a bad look for the administration. And then also it would have um, sort of preserved too many elements of the Affordable Care Act. Which is amazing because that's the political <laughs> quandary that Republicans exactly. keep fighting themselves in is it's like you can preserve the – popular elements, but then you're also saving the ACA, right? Yep. Which And that costs money. <laughs> right. I think the lack of a plan could start to become more of a liability for President Trump as we get into a general election campaign. So, you know, as Alice says right now, right now the Democratic candidates in the primary, they're really jostling about and trying to prove who's got mm-hmm. the best health care plan uh, for the future that expands on uh, the current status quo. They don't want to talk so much about the lawsuit. They don't want to talk so much about the Affordable Care Act because they basically agree on that. It's not a good way for them to distinguish uh, among themselves. But I think especially depending on who the nominee is, you could see this becoming a much bigger issue in the general election if you imagine one of the more moderate candidates who – like, for example um, – Joe Biden, who you know is really his message around healthcare. He has a very ambitious healthcare plan, actually that would that would make a lot of changes. But the rhetoric that he uses is very much, "I help pass the ACA. This is this great bill. I'm the protector of this." I mean, you could just see him very easily hammering President Trump mm-hmm. for wanting to take away the Affordable Care Act and having no plan, and really putting more pressure on him to have to at least have a plan. You know, if President Trump's position continues to be we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare and, you know, John McCain is the real villain here and also we're telling the courts to do it, I think in that scenario it becomes harder for him to then have no plan. I don't think it has to be a super detailed piece of legislation kind of plan, but I think now they have almost nothing. In a scenario in which a Bernie Sanders is the Democratic nominee and we're having a health care debate that is about Medicare for all, then I think it actually gets way easier for President Trump to skate on not having a plan because – I think then he in some ways is the protector of the status quo. He gets to make the argument that the Democrats want to make, which is I'm going to protect your private insurance. I'm going to keep things the way they are right now. I'm not going to take anything away from you. And this other guy wants to have socialism. Which is sort of what Joe Biden is saying now in the primary. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think another big problem is going to be that President Trump keeps saying he is the protector of pre-existing conditions. That's what makes me skeptical that they're going to come out with any kind of real plan because it seems like their strategy is just to – sort of have this kind of broad projection right. and saying Which no. Which is blatantly not true. Exactly. Blatant, and, like. and so, but if if they find that just asserting these things and saying, you know, we're protecting this, we're doing this, we're doing that, even if it's not true, if they find that that's successful and that, you know, makes the base happy, then there's really no incentive to have. Well, and right. And I think the base a plan that believes, people could criticize. Yeah. Right. I think the base generally believes everything Trump says. So, you know, I think... But I think it can start to seem irresponsible. 
for President Trump to be actively litigating this case, saying, I want this entire thing wiped off the books. And I think that is something that he is saying Mm -hmm. to his voters. I'm going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. That's why we're in court doing this. And then to say... I saved pre-existing. I have no idea. Like, shruggy, you know? (laughs) Like, I don't know what comes next. And I think he has not faced a lot of pressure to reconcile that currently. But it, it it may come to bear. And it may just be a lot of dissembling is the answer. But I think it will be more of a political liability in the general election context for him to have nothing to answer for. I wrote a story uh, a few months ago called Trump's Smoke and Mirrors 2020 Strategy, (laughs) which I stand by. (laughs) All right. Well, while we're sort of on the subject of of universal coverage and what's going to happen in the the general election, um, while the administration is deciding whether or not to put out a health plan this week, we got some news from the American College of Physicians, the leading medical society for internists, under the heading better is possible. The group is endorsing the idea of universal coverage through either a single-payer system or a public option, I guess protecting themselves no matter who becomes the (laughs) Democratic nominee. It is by far the largest medical association in the U.S. to come out for single-payer, although it has long been, this group has been kind of more at the more progressive edge of medical specialty groups. Um, They are are the least conservative, let us say. Uh, And even the American Medical Association has backed off of its most strident opposition to government-run health care. Although, leads to the question, are doctors suing for peace here or will this be like surprise bills, which is we like this in general principles, but if the specifics make us uh, get less money, we will fight it to the death. I thought it was really interesting, and I thought it was sort of an acknowledgement that the current system is so bad for providers in some ways um, that they're even willing to entertain these suggestions that could lead to them being paid a lot less um, because, you know, the the burdens they have under the current system dealing with all of the different plans administratively. Um, And I've spoken to provider groups who talk about just, yeah, the burdens of um, caring for uninsured people and and just seeing that harm in society um, have sort of pushed them in this direction. And so I do think it's interesting that they did public option and single payer because those are really different. But that's what I mean. A lot of groups are doing that. A lot of the big labor unions also are, are saying that as well. Like SEIU said, you know, we're for both the public option and uh, and or single payer. We saw a lot of this in the run-up to the Affordable Care Act. A lot of provider groups that had been very much opposed to any kind of large-scale health reform suddenly, you know, were, were in the room and at the table and actively negotiating. I guess I'm wondering if this is a qualitative change or or just sort of a, a, the continuing uh, evolution. I think this is actually a really big deal. And it shows how this generational change that is taking place within uh, the, the profession of physicians. So, you know, I think that we all have a stereotype of who the typical physician is. And we think of them as being a small business owner in a small practice, probably a man, an older man, uh, and probably pretty conservative in the same way that many high earning small business owners tend to be. Um, that is not who doctors are anymore. Um, the people entering medicine have changed. It's a much more diverse group. There are many more women in medicine than there were before. Uh, they tend to be employed either by hospitals or in large groups, so they're not entrepreneurs in the same way. And they're much younger. And, you know, we can see sort of demographically across the political spectrum, even not doctors, everyone, 
younger people, women, non-white people, much more likely to be liberal in their politics. And so we have seen this change that's been bubbling up in medicine as these younger, more diverse people are entering the profession and they're practicing in a different way. Their politics is permeating the way that they think about these issues. And we saw the AMA came quite close, actually, which is the AMA is kind of the old guard, big, The AMA is the reason we have the health system we have now. They have, yeah. <laughs> they have fought every major health reform push since – 1930s. I mean, that, 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 that's what made the AMA. The AMA was their opposition to government-run medicine. But the last time they voted on this question about single-payer, they came quite close to endorsing it. And they I think did. that should have gotten all of our attention. So now we see the slightly smaller, slightly more liberal group of doctors that have really gone all the way. But I think it is showing us the way that doctors have changed. Now, that does not mean... <laughs> That the answer to your second question is no. I think, you know, the surprise billing was really revealing that I think when people and especially when particular specialty groups revenue is on the line, when their business practices are on the line, they can get quite defensive in the way that anyone who is threatened by a policy change may behave. And, and spend is, lots of money on ads. And spend lots of money on ads. And this is just, you know, one group. There are other groups that I think remain very opposed to single payer who understand that it would be in opposition to their business interests or in opposition to the way that they want to practice medicine. So, I mean, this is an on, I think this will be an ongoing debate uh, between and among doctors. But I think we should take a minute to recognize that this is a sign that our stereotypes about the composition and politics of doctors are changing quite rapidly. Well, and just to add to that, I, you know, this is, I know we're talking politics, right? And interest groups matter in politics. They have the money, they're in, they're doing the lobbying. But I think just doctors in general, and we're talking about healthcare providers generally, uh, I think we're living in a world where obviously providers are sucking up more and more money um, from the American public. Like hospitals are getting rich. These uh, private equity-backed physician staffing firms, which are behind all the surprise billing, the doctor-patient unity group, um, so the surprise billing ads, uh, you know, they're private equity-backed. Like, And so I think there is a little bit of a disconnect between your everyday doctor <laughs> and practicing physician and people who are in charge of hospitals and doctor groups and who have the money and then are – you know, influencing specialty groups here. So I think to Margo's point, you know, even I, I'm skeptical that these big groups speak for all doctors and how they feel about things like universal coverage and single payer and whatnot. Um, I think there's also sort of a, a widening divide between sort of doctor haves and have nots. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get right. that, that, you know, that there are a lot of doctors who are bringing in many, 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 you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then there are, you know, the, the, the internists and the primary care doctors of the world who don't make that much money and who are, you know, seriously overburdened and probably would do as well, if not better, in terms of what they have to hire to do all their paperwork, you know, with a, a more sort of government regulated system. And, and probably would be more amenable to because it, it would make their quality of life better. Right. Um, but And I think you're seeing that. I mean, it used to be – there didn't used to be the, these sort of huge – gaps between right. sort of the, the lower end of the, 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 the physician earning spectrum and the higher end of the physician earning spectrum. I divide in, in the interest of, you know, the individual physician versus the hospital. And so you see the hospital association, you know, fully participating, leading the campaign against um, single payer and the public option. I forget, is the AMA in that coalition they or left. not? They, oh, they left. left. They, voted to le they voted to leave the coalition lobbying against single payer, but they didn't vote to support support single buyer. I did a story a few years ago now where I worked with some researchers at Yale who had 
voter file data on physicians in a big sample of U.S. states, the states where you can get this kind of uh, voter file data. And they basically looked at, like, which doctors are Republicans and which doctors are Democrats. And there are these huge divides. I mean, like, if you – your average psychiatrist is a Democrat and Mm -hmm. your average orthopedic surgeon is a Republican. And we saw – we had these beautiful charts with the piece. But you could see just very, very uh, stark differences among the specialties. And a lot of that, again, is driven by the demographics of who's entering these professions. And I felt like – uh, really fascinated by like, is it um, is it chicken or is it egg? Is it that the kind of people who enter medicine because they are more conservative, they're more entrepreneurial, they want to earn big bucks, go into these higher paid specialties? Or is it that you you everyone comes in and they're tabula rasa and then they go into orthopedic surgery training and they're in this culture of people who share these values and they sort of drift towards them? I don't think we have a good answer, but we definitely know that there are uh, these pretty big differences in the political orientation. I'm guessing of doctors. it's both. I'm guessing it's a combination. and it's pretty correlated with income. Yeah. By the way, the mm-hmm. physicians who are lo- more likely to be Republican are in the specialties that earn more. We're talking about how long doctors have influenced the political date. I just I don't know that voters will know this, and if they're looking at an ad, but I do think it's important just to point out how much money these doctors are making, and it keeps increasing over time in hospitals. Sadly, it's not about public health. It's about money, right? And so I think that. When we're seeing all these ads like, oh, hospitals will be wiped out and no one will want to be a doctor anymore, you know, I think it's important. We're going to see a lot of that, right, if if a Democrat wins, especially if Bernie or Warren wins. You know, I'm going back to I'm skeptical if that's how your average doctor feels. And it's also, it's like, yes, these groups might be behind these ads, but of course, they're, we don't know if they're true, but it's very highly likely that they're going to be exaggerated. And I think that this conversation about income and political leanings tracks perfectly with where the nurses have been at on this debate this whole time because the nursing profession is generally much lower paid, way more women, way more people of color. And the nurses' groups have been really just hardcore at the forefront of the pro-single-payer debate for a while. Um, oh, for decades. Before yeah. it became you know, part of the mainstream yes. presidential conversation. All right. Well, I want to talk about an actual public health issue for a a little bit. Um, The first case of the so-called Wuhan coronavirus, a mysterious flu-like illness first identified in Wuhan, China, is starting to pop up in other countries, including the U.S. in Washington state. Uh, Wuhan itself, a city of 11 million people, is currently on lockdown with transportation in and out cut off. We are waiting to see uh, if the World Health Organization is going to declare an international emergency. But meanwhile, I want to talk about how prepared the U.S. actually is for a pandemic. This was a giant priority in Congress and the federal government in the early years after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. Uh, But it feels like except for a little bit of a spike of panic during the 2014 Ebola outbreak, this has gotten fairly ignored among policymakers. Are we going to get caught flat-footed? I mean, we don't know that this virus, you know, is going to be that we've had a bunch of scares before about new novel, you know, communicable diseases that could be the next, you know, Spanish flu. But eventually one is going to come along. And I, it it seems that this is not something that's on anybody's priority list. This is just a kind of pathogen that I think is really hard to have a good response for. So it's like if you're not really on the ball and you have a respiratory illness that is easily transmissible among people in the way that flu is 
and that is that has the potential to kill a lot of people like that is a very scary prospect i think in some ways much more so than ebola which of course has a really high fatality rate and is a terrible disease but is pretty hard to catch you know i remember covering i was a reporter in new hampshire when the h1n1 the swine flu epidemic first reached the united states and it turned out that some people did die from that particularly dangerous for pregnant women and young children but uh, it just turned out that that virus was kind of a mild flu. People were really worried about it. It was a kind of category of flu that could have been really bad, uh, but it was not like a Spanish flu kind of flu. It was more like a typical flu where people just kind of got sick for a couple of days unless they had these risk factors and were okay. But I think that was a real wake-up call in terms of our ability to fight one of these guys really quickly because it spreads quickly and we still takes us a really long time to develop new vaccines. And we saw a little bit of, of you know the same set of concerns around the Zika outbreak a few years ago. Again, this is a disease that's a little bit harder to catch. Um, You know, it's transmitted through mosquitoes. There were some parts of the United States where these mosquitoes with Zika were found, but it didn't really become endemic here. But that was one where, like, it seemed like the vaccine development actually was pretty sped up and there were some improvements. But if that had been a respiratory illness, I don't know that it would have been fast enough. Well, and I think the financial incentives to develop drugs are totally not conducive to vaccines or even, um, you know, antibiotics. That's another big one that's related. Right. You, you want to develop a drug that people are going to take for the rest of their lives, not right. they're going to take for either one right. in the case of a vaccine or, or a week. Exactly. Yeah. Or never if the disease never arrives. Right. right. Exactly. And so we don't have any kind of good system to either incentivize private drug companies to make these kind of drugs or, uh, you know, government-run system. So, you know, I think that that is one of the biggest concerns is that this problem is going to catch up to us before we have the drugs to address it or even like the mechanism, right? And I don't think that's on us. We've been talking about all kinds of other healthcare issues that are way more prominent on politicians' minds. And yet in some cases, this is way more dangerous. Right, right. I mean, Ron Klain, who ran the uh, Ebola um, response in 2014, has been writing this week about all the things that they set up in terms of, you know, having emergency rooms overrun. You don't want that if you have something that's easily transmissible because then everybody in the emergency room ends up, you know, with with it. So the idea was to create, you know, sort of places where people with these transmissible diseases could go. And I think there were like 100 at some point, And now most of them have been decommissioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it feels like we never do prepare for the things that you are, are not that likely to happen. But when they do happen, you really need to be prepared. I, I feel like that's sort of fallen by the wayside while we fight about surprise bills, not that they <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be fighting about surprise bills. I mean, Grant, but, I feel like the U.S. government is very good at fighting about things that are more abstract. But then we have a lot. I mean, this is one of like several crises we have right at our doorstep and just, you know, sweep it under the rug. It won't sell political ads, you or, know. <laughs> or we'll deal with it when it happens. I think there's an awful lot of we'll deal with it when it happens. I mean, go back to the ACA, you know, having response right. to that. We'll deal with that when it happens. We don't have – it's not an emergency right now. But we've also seen Congress n- not able to deal with things when they do happen. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> it's not like a, a, a crisis moment always leads to <laughs> a resolution. Sometimes. All Very right. dark. Well, this this week also marked the 47th anniversary of the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion nationwide. Though, as we discussed last week, the high court in March will hear a case out of Louisiana that some want 
to them to use to overturn Roe. Meanwhile, this week, the Supreme Court has accepted another reproductive health case, uh, one that has to do with a requirement in the Affordable Care Act that employer health insurance provide prescription birth control. In 2014, the court ruled that the craft store chain Hobby Lobby and other closely held corporations are free to not obey the regulations, along with churches and other houses of worship who were exempted in the law itself. But the court never resolved the question of religiously affiliated entities, particularly religious hospitals and universities. A case got to the Supreme Court in 2016, but at that point there was no one in the vacant seat of the late Justice Scalia. So the court split four to four, ended up sending the cases. There were seven of them, I think, back down to the lower courts. Now the justices will hear a case not on whether the Obama administration's accommodations violate the religious freedoms of the religious employers, but rather whether the Trump administration's rules, the ones that would let them ignore the requirement altogether, are fair to the women who would no longer get free contraceptive coverage. Um, Alice, where are we with these rules? This has just been going on for years. And um, the this case that the Supreme Court has now agreed to hear is basically Hobby Lobby on steroids. It's asking whether almost any employer, although not a publicly traded company, but almost any employer, big, small, for-profit, non-profit, can opt out on either a religious or a moral basis, that's important, and say we're not going to include birth control coverage in our uh, employee plan. Or they can say uh, we have an objection to certain kinds, certain m- methods of birth control like an IUD. and Which was Hobby, Hobby exactly. Lobby had, had – they didn't have issues with most birth control, but right. they had issues with some. So this would allow that, that carve out as well and it's saying that um, the uh, Obama administration's uh, workaround that was in the law saying, you know – Certain organizations can opt out if they have this religious objection, but there's a mechanism for the people to still – the workers to still get that covered and not have to pay out of pocket. And um, they're saying even that workaround violates our our religious rights. The adding – They had to sign a piece of paper that said we don't want to do this, but they said that that – Signing the piece of paper still allows – Yes, and then that they that opposed it made them being a part of that. In providing something that they opposed. right, right. So, what's also interesting is maybe this could come down on the religious versus moral objection because they're leaning on uh, RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, as some lower court judges have pointed out, it's not the Moral Freedom Restoration Act, and so this could say, you know, if. You just don't believe in this politically or uh, personally, but you can't cite a religious objection that's not allowable. So that could be a potential split for the Supreme Court as well. But, I mean, this could really impact just millions and millions of people around the country. The provision under the Affordable Care Act to cover uh, birth control as like a preventative service fully covered um, has just been huge. I mean, the number of women who have to pay out of pocket or struggle to afford birth control, there's just lots of data that um, that has made a huge difference around the country. And so it's already been rolled back a bit through things like Hobby Lobby, but this would be a, a huge expansion of that. Alice has just like laid out all the stakes in the context. Um, but it's there's also like the grounds for the lawsuit, which has to do not just with what the effects are of this regulation and how it comports with these other laws, but also the regulatory process that was used to make the rule. And it's just like one of many examples of Trump administration regulations where I think they were really eager to push far and push fast. And they were a little bit sloppy about how they wrote the rules. In this case, they just uh, 
didn't go through a normal notice and comment period, and then the court slapped them down, and then they went back and did it sort of subsequently. I just think it's 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 good to think about as one of many cases, not just in healthcare, but there are a lot of them in healthcare where the administration probably could have been on a stronger and firmer footing at this stage of the litigation if they had been a little bit more careful and deliberate about their regulatory process, and they weren't. And so it is possible that they could lose this case, do a better job, and win later. Later. <laughs> if they're still in office. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, this but, is their last chance, you know, before the election. Term, yes. Yeah. Uh, Republican administrations tend to like to do things on the Roe v. Wade anniversary. And this year on the Roe v. Wade anniversary, the Trump administration approved a Texas request to use federal Medicaid funds for a family planning program that specifically excludes Planned Parenthood. This is something Texas has been pursuing for most of the past decade. But it was blocked by the first by the, the Obama administration and then by the courts because it violates the Medicaid requirement that patients have free choice of providers. Alice, this is actually a bigger deal than some people realize, right? This is a really huge deal, and it's less of a huge deal for Texas than it is for other states that might attempt this because Texas already excluded Planned Parenthood from their um, family planning and this is just to be these yes. are this is a program for people for women who are not on Medicaid per yes. se, but still have low incomes and therefore qualify just for family planning services using Medicaid funds. Exactly, and so the Texas tried to do this several years ago. Um, tried to say, you know, we want this federal money for offering these services to uninsured women in the state, and they said, well, you can't have the federal money if you violate this provision of Medicaid saying they can go to a provider of their choice. Um, And so they got no federal money and they were using state money for this whole time. And so this week they are approved to get federal money for that, given the green light to kick Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers out of the program. So I think it's more illustrative to think about what has happened in Texas, because not that much is going to change now. This is just replacing state money with federal money. Um, The choice of providers within this program is just still going to be the same. But since they moved to kick Planned Parenthood out of Medicaid, it's important to look at what happened in Texas, which is lots of clinics had to close their doors. Um, Health outcomes and uh, unplanned pregnancies got worse in the state. Um, There's been a lot of data and studies of that uh, over the years. And so, first of all, you're definitely going to see lawsuits about this because other states have tried to do this before and gotten sued and lost in court. Um, So that that's certainly going to happen. Not not the court ruling, but the lawsuit itself is certainly going to happen. But I think you're going to see a bunch of other states because the Trump administration gave Texas the green light to do this. Moving to that, we already have three waivers pending that would do just that um, in South Carolina and I'm forgetting the other two states. Tennessee, I think it's one. And possibly Indiana. I can't remember. I would have to check. But those three are already in the pipeline and I assume there will be. Much yeah, more. and I was going to say that's sort of the big deal here. I mean, Texas has been operating this program as it is with state money anyway, so nothing technically changes. But what will likely change is that these other states that want to basically do the same thing are going to get their first chance. I mean, this whole issue of kicking Planned Parenthood out of Medicaid, which this is only a small piece of. This isn't kicking them out of Medicaid per se. It's kicking them out of this sort of next level Medicaid program. And and I think people should remember that even though the courts are increasingly stacked with Trump administration appointees who have very conservative views on um, contraception and abortion. I think 
we should remember that a case about this already came to the Supreme Court with Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the bench, and they turned it away and um, basically upheld the status quo and, and said states – or not said, but the outcome was that states cannot do this. States cannot get Planned Parenthood out of their Medicaid programs. And so if this goes in the court, the conservative justices might not be as friendly to it as people in the sort of anti-abortion, anti-Planned Parenthood movement hope. I think there's evidence of the legal murkiness of this move in, if you guys remember, when Republicans were trying to repeal and replace Obamacare, they had a whole big meaty provision in the legislation that would have allowed states to – or may have even required states to kick Planned Parenthood out of these programs. Yeah, no, I think it would have required them. said no federal money for mm -hmm, anybody who mm -hmm. provides abortion. And I think the fact that that was written into the legislation is a pretty good sign that at least in Congress, they did not think that the current law – allowed the states to do this. And of course, they, as it turned out, they couldn't do that. They had to drop it because they they could not put that in a budget reconciliation bill and they would need 60 votes, and they're, which they're obviously, even with Republicans in charge, are not – not only are there not 60 votes to, to change the piece of Medicaid law that requires free choice of providers, there are not 50 votes that, that requires it because there are enough um, Planned Parenthood supporting Republicans, or at least there were, that uh, that they've not been able to, to pass this. So. And, and also just to follow up on something that Alice said about what the experience has been in Texas. I think it's really important to remember that even though Planned Parenthood is an organization that has facilities that perform abortions, that is part of their mission. It's part of what they do. They do it in a lot of states. They also have a lot of clinics that do not perform abortion. And there are a lot of places in the country where they really are the primary site where women are receiving these kinds of reproductive health services. And so men. They do men a lot do, of STD yeah. testing. STD testing, uh, contraceptive counseling, writing prescriptions for contraception, inserting contraceptive forms like um, IEDs or arm implants that have to happen in a medical office. And the reason why the Texas experience showed all of these changes in public health was because there are not other providers that are readily able to absorb the patients that are currently being treated by Planned Parenthood. Now, that's not necessarily a permanent problem. It could be if Planned Parenthood got out of this business that someone else would step up and take it. But it's been a bunch of years in Texas now, and we continue to see the effects of them getting shut out of this program, which suggests that they are filling a pretty important niche in the healthcare ecosystem in a lot of these states. And some of the organizations that have attempted to step in and fill the void have been really problematic. And even the state had to claw back some of the funding because um, the, Texas gave um, a bunch of money to uh, an anti-abortion, anti-contraception organization that was um, saying, we're going to provide all these services as part of um, this program. And they we're they not didn't. providing the services. Um, and so uh, Texas had to, you know, have this whole fight to get some of that money back. And so not only are uh, is there a lack of providers um, ready to fill that role, but there's a skepticism <laughs> that some of these players attempting to get in on this money um, will be able to to do that. All right. One more, and I want to keep this brief. Um, be, again, because it's the Roe anniversary, we've got a flurry of polls about Americans' attitudes towards abortion. And surprise, Americans are conflicted. In general, they think abortion should be legal, but majorities, in a new poll from my colleague to the Kaiser Family Foundation and in other polls, also support restrictions, even if they generally support abortion rights and also think 
think most of those restrictions are aimed more at deterring abortion than at protecting pregnant women's health and safety. Now, this ambivalence has kind of been the case as long as I have been covering reproductive issues, which dates back to the mid-1980s. Anybody want to make a case that this has changed in any significant way? It's been very stable over time. Um, People are very divided by political affiliation, um, but more people support abortion rights than not. Um, And that has that's held for many years. I think uh, what's interesting is, like you said, the contradictions that people asked about particular restrictions on abortion both say it's too hard to get an abortion right now and that these restrictions are not aimed at protecting the health and safety of women, but they're still in favor of the restrictions. But if you give them a little more information about the restrictions, then some of them change their mind and are against it. Um, And so I thought also in the Kaiser poll, it was very interesting to go through uh, just there's just so much confusion and misinformation about abortion in general. Most people did not know what was legal or illegal under Roe versus Wade as it is now. They didn't know what would happen in their own state if Roe versus Wade went away. They didn't know when in pregnancy most abortions take place. There's sort of an assumption because of all the rhetoric about abortions later in pregnancy and all the hot political debates about that. It People just think that happens way more often than it really does. So <laughs> they uh, about the, the um, so-called heartbeat bans, the six-week bans, people didn't understand that that's before many people even know they're pregnant. And so I think a lot of that lack of information or misinformation is fueling these contradictory and somewhat malleable views that a lot of people hold. If you ask voters, you know, how important is this to your vote, except for the there's a small subset of anti-abortion voters for whom this is extremely important to their vote, which I think you can see why Republicans have a tendency to to, to cater to them, if you will. Um, but it, it tends to be, unlike some other issues that Democrats don't talk about, this tends to be an issue that they do talk about, um, but is not necessarily at the top of voters' lists. I mean, is it just sort of a separate into tribes kind of issue? It both is and isn't because um, most people are somewhere in the middle and most people's views are not represented by either of the parties right now. Um, You have all of the leading presidential candidates advocating for overturning the Hyde Amendment. Um, The Democrats. Yes. Yes. Um, And um, most people are not there. The polling shows most people are not comfortable with that. Um, That would be federal funding of abortion. Yes. And so and then on the other side, you have, you know, Republican lawmakers and the administration really trying to ban abortions in a very sweeping way. And most people don't support that either. I think the polarization you see on the political level is not the same as where most people, regular people are at. I also think the the views that you see in these polls are so muddled and confused. They seem so malleable based on how the question is worded, how much information you give them. Uh, They, as Alice said, are really poorly informed about basic facts. Um, And whatever, this is not unique to abortion. I think this is true on a lot of issue polls. People are busy. They have their priorities. They don't know everything about everything. And if you ask them a poll with a lot of really specific questions, like they're going to give you an answer. It may not be an informed answer. And I think it is a little bit difficult for politicians to navigate in that kind of murky, poorly informed area when the voices of people who know it really well and care about it a lot are so strong, are so clear and are asking for such extreme thing, not extreme, but, you know, on the extremes of this debate. Um, And so I think a lot of what you see are politicians are sort of like signaling 
I'm on the side of abortion rights. I'm on the side of life. Um, and so they adopt these positions that are outside of this like murky, muddy middle. But it's a way of at least telling voters like generally like, OK, like if you favor abortion rights, vote for me. If you favor abortion restrictions, vote for me. And the kind of um, fine print of what they're endorsing is what those really animated people on either side, the ones who know this issue well and know what they care about, are asking for. And it's it's also about where the money and energy is coming from in terms of the organizations. You have um, the Susan B. Anthony List, the anti-abortion group, committing to spend more than $50 million turning out voters um, for – primarily for Republican candidates, uh, including President Trump. I, on the other side, you have Planned Parenthood committing to spend $45 million, um, doing the same on the other side. And so um, Margo is definitely right that, um, you know, lawmakers are not so much trying to meet where all of their average constituents are at, but they're looking at the loudest and, and most powerful and best funded groups and what they're asking for as well. Base turnout. Yes. <laughs> and the, I think in some ways the groups themselves are really encouraging this polarization. I was interested to see that Susan B. Anthony put out their um, report cards for mm -hmm. lawmakers recently where they basically grade every lawmaker on A to F, like where are you on our issues? And it's like I think there were only like two or three members of Congress that were anything other than an A or an F. It just seems like it's very hard to play in the middle. Like nobody D wants Doug Jones there. got a D, I thought. <laughs> But yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's as much time we have for the news this week. Now, it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Margo, why don't you go first this week? I wanted to recommend the latest episode of the podcast, Tradeoffs. It's called The Price of Innovation. And it really kind of uh, gets into the nuts and bolts of what we know about the relationship between drug price and incentives for scientists and drug companies to develop new technologies. And uh, it, it features a very sort of like extended interview with the early stage developer of a new medical technology that I, I think is kind of wonderful and just I think we talk a lot about these like big pharmaceutical companies. We don't talk enough about like where do these things actually come from? Who pays for them? Who makes them? How do they get to market? And this piece, I think, engages with the economics literature about this, which is kind of uh, frustratingly inconclusive. But it also is a really nice tutorial on who the real players are and how they make the decisions about what kinds of technologies to pursue and not pursue. It's sitting in my podcast queue. I think mm. it's next. Alice. Um, I, I intentionally avoided talking about this earlier, saving it, but uh, it pertains to our earlier conversation about whether there is any uh, pressure on President Trump going into his reelection to uh, uh, put out health care plans and um, really uh, give voters a sense of <laughs> where they're at. Um, so uh, this piece in The New York Times by Maggie Haberman uh, in Oval Office meeting, Trump expresses regret on vaping policy, but it, this is this is about much more than vaping. Um, uh, she and many others, including my colleagues, reported on this uh, incident at the White House where in the middle of a sort of unrelated meeting, the president expressed sort of a freak out on, on health care and on the public's views about um, the administration and health care and uh, really expressing anxiety that polling shows that uh, more people trust Democrats than Republicans on health care. Um, they, you know, are opposed to the efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, etc., and was um, 
sort of demanding of uh, HHS Secretary Azar, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing about this? How are we going to lower drug prices? Um, Tangential to that, also freaked out about um, the uh, vaping action, which was sort of basically tried to split the middle and made no one happy on either side because the public health folks said uh, that the restriction they rolled out doesn't go far enough. It still allows some flavored um, uh, e-cigarettes uh, that could appeal to teens. Um, and the uh, obviously the vaping industry feels it went too far and will hurt their business. And so um, I think this shows that, that there is a lot of anxiety in the administration on, on these issues, whether that will translate into rolling out actual plans and actions. Healthcare is hard. Remains to be seen. Caitlin. <laughs> so I chose my own story about how employers, not patients, have the most health insurance choices. Uh, and this is just getting at that argument by a lot of moderate Democrats and Republicans that, you know, health, our health care system needs to preserve patient choice. Uh, you know, Joe Biden kind of hinted at this with his uh, interview with the New York Times editorial board where he said, well, if your employer chooses to keep your health insurance, you can keep it. Um, and so my piece is just basically pointing out that, you know, individual people with employer insurance often have very little, if any, choices. Um you, yeah. We have two. <laughs> two. or PPO. <laughs> you know, we've got one company with a few different options yeah. in it, you know. Um, so it's like it's all Aetna, but, uh, you know, you can choose the one with a little bit of a twink, uh, tinkering with the deductible. But anyways, so um, it's just kind of highlighting that context. And I did talk – but one point I did make was – that, you know, as Larry Levitt of the Kaiser Family Foundation pointed out, you know, people might not actually or they don't care as much about their health insurer choices that with that as much as they care about having choice of provider. Um, and so really how the public option or Medicare for all is structured, um, you know, whether providers participate will end up having a big impact on how voters feel about it. Well, minus from The Atlantic. It's by Jared Bennett and Olga Kazan, and it's called America's Most Powerful Debt Collector. And if you think private hospitals are ferocious about trying to collect unpaid bills, the military health system has three words for you, hold my beer. It turns out that in parts of the country, if you're seriously injured, you may be taken to a military medical facility and charged lots of money. And if you can't pay, your debt can eventually be sent to the Treasury Department, which will garnish your wages or your Social Security check or your tax refund, even if the debt amount is wrong or you're in the process of paying it back. At least that's what happened to the patient in the story who ended up at a military hospital in Texas after he took a bad fall. The whole story is kind of eye-popping. I did not know that military hospitals took civilian emergency cases. They don't around here. Um, but clearly this is a thing in many parts of the country. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. At Caitlin and Owens. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.